Okay, now if you've made your way to Luke 24, I need to remind you um, that today is not Easter, but we are talking about the resurrection today. Um, This is the resurrection account. Uh, We're here simply because this is where we are in the study of Luke. And if I was better at long-term planning, we would have ended up right here on March 31st, okay? But we still have a few weeks to go. We'll talk about the resurrection again on Easter Sunday, of course. Um, But here we are today looking at verses 1 through 12 in the account of Jesus being raised from the dead. When we last saw him, at least in the text... He um, had been crucified, he was buried, and he was left alone at the end of chapter 23, having been buried in a tomb, and a large stone rolled in front of the tomb, left alone uh, throughout the entire Sabbath day. All of the observant Jews were resting on that day. Jesus' body was also resting. And then... As you know, what happens next is is unexpected. It's unexpected, at least by all the humans in the narrative. The women who had saw him buried return later at dawn after the Sabbath and hear a report that Jesus has been raised. Raised in his very body from the dead. And we're going to read the account of this happening, and then we're going to talk about it. But we're going to have a very short time to talk about it. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the resurrection report from a human perspective. We're going to take a very brief look at it um, from a human perspective, which is how we typically consider the resurrection. And then we're going to flip over to the other side of the table and look at the resurrection from God's perspective. I wonder if you've ever considered the resurrection from God's perspective before. And my hope is that in making this move to the other side of the table from the human side over to the divine side and thinking about this event from God's perspective, that those of you who already believe that the resurrection of Jesus took place will be confirmed in your faith. And that those of you who do not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus will be compelled by what we see to investigate it further. All right? That's our, that's our hope. Let's read the text first, verses 1 through 12 of Luke 24, and then we'll, we'll talk about it together. All right? Let's stand in honor of God and his word if you're able to stand. This is what we find. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James 
and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Heavenly Father, I I pray that you would invest these moments um, of preaching and listening um, with Holy Spirit power, that you would help us to understand and enjoy what we find here, that you would confirm many in their faith and give the gift of faith to many who have not believed. Thank you, in Jesus' beautiful name, amen. All right, please be seated. Okay, well, let's say something first about the resurrection from a human perspective. From a human perspective, the resurrection is something that we debate. We split into groups over it, right? I'm talking about from a human perspective, all humans, not just people in this room or people listening, but from a human perspective, the resurrection is something that we split into groups over and debate. As a matter of fact, you can see these groups form immediately. Immediately after the resurrection, the three groups form, and we see it right in our text. Look, look at them. Here, notice them. Here they are. First of all, there are those who believe the report. They are the believers who become witnesses. These are verse 10 people. These are the women who hear the report, remember the words of Jesus, believe the report, and pass it on to others. That's the first group. Many of you um, in this room would consider yourselves part of this group. You're verse 10 people. You've believed the report of the resurrection. You are engaged in making the report to other people, okay? Secondly, look at the second group. Some listening are verse 11 people. Like the apostles, verse 11, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. We could call this group the skeptics or the unbelievers, those who hear the report and do not find it credible and don't believe. Okay, right? You with me so far? Two groups, right? Believers, non-believers. And look at also the presence of this third group. It's a very small group in the text that we're reading. It's, it's a group of only one. Some of you might be verse 12 people. We could call this group the seekers. In our text, only Peter is part of this group. Notice that Peter doesn't necessarily, he hasn't necessarily bought into the report yet. He's not all the way in that group, but neither has he completely rejected the report. He's doing something else. But Peter Rosen, he's going to go investigate it for himself. And some of you would consider yourselves to be in that group. You, You have heard the report of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day. And you wouldn't put yourself in either group at this point. You are investigating. You're looking for yourself. All, all of us, no matter what our background is, can locate ourselves in one of those three groups with, the respect, with respect to the resurrection. We have either believed it, we have not believed it, or we're seeking. We're trying to figure it out for ourselves. Believers, skeptics, seekers, all likely represented here. And so what we do from a human perspective is that we have debates about it. Right? The believers and the unbelievers find their, their best person, their best people, and those people assemble their arguments, 
And then they go at it with each other, and they bring their arguments against each other, and they rebut each other's arguments, right? The believers and the unbelievers. And the seekers stand to the side and listen and process arguments and think about it. From a human point of view, this is what the resurrection resulted in. Immediately after it happened, three groups formed. Those dynamics are still with us. They formed right here in Luke 24. And um, I enjoy a good debate about the resurrection. They're really good debates um, that are out there for public consumption that you can find. But that's not our purpose today, to debate the evidence of the resurrection and present arguments from a human point of view. Our purpose today, whatever group... You're in. Verse 10, verse 11, verse 12, is to go to the other side of the table and look at the resurrection from God's point of view. From God's perspective, the resurrection is not a subject to be debated. It's something else altogether. And our purpose is to look at that something else. And um, just to put all my cards on the table, what I'm, what I'm hoping will happen For those of you who are skeptical about the resurrection or a seeker, is that you'll see something today as we go through this that maybe you haven't seen before. That the the beauty of God's long-term planning of the resurrection and how he has prepared it for, prepared us for it over a long period of time. And seeing all the threads that run through the scriptures that all lead to Jesus being raised on the third day, I'm I'm hoping that you will find it compelling enough to keep looking and to keep asking the question, could it be that this really took place? That this Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead on the third day? Okay, so let's switch sides of the table and look at this report from God's perspective. From God's perspective, far from being something that we debate, the resurrection is, first of all, something that was promised. The resurrection is something that God promised long, 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 long ago, okay? In your Bible, all the way back to Genesis 3, first book of the Bible, third chapter, we see the resurrection promised. Now, admittedly, and we're looking at verse 15, if, you're, if you've pulled up Genesis 3, I'm, I'm going to put it, or we'll put it up here on the uh, screen in just a moment. Admittedly, this promise is mysterious. The, the first readers, the first audience, wouldn't have seen bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ in this promise. There were only two humans who existed when this promise was made. Two humans, Adam and Eve, who fell into sin and died spiritually. And before God had pronounced the curse that their actions brought upon them, before there was a curse on Adam and Eve, there was a promise. Genesis 3.15. It's actually a promise given to the serpent. Here's Here's what God said. To the servant, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. That just means humanity will be at war with Satan. There will be spiritual warfare. We will be attacked, we'll be tempted, we'll be enslaved, we'll need to be rescued from sin, right? I will put enmity between 
your offspring and her offspring. But here's the promise. The promise follows that. He, that's the offspring of the woman, shall bruise your head. Remember, God's talking to the serpent here. He, the offspring of the woman, will bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. God talking to the serpent. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. There will be mutual bruising between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. They will bruise each other. There will be mutual bruising, but there won't be equal bruising. That's the, that's the key point. There will be mutual bruising, but it won't be equal bruising. Some of you will, will know the name or recognize the name Dwight Pentecost, who taught at Dallas Seminary until he was 99. I mean, isn't that a wonderful name for a, a professor? Teacher of the Bible? Pentecost? Really? How could that be? His, his fate was marked out for him long ago at birth, right? Dwight Pentecost. Of course God let him teach for 99 years. Here's what, here's what he said about this passage. He said that Satan bruised Jesus on the heel at the cross. But at the tomb, Jesus bruised Satan on the head. See, the heel and the head are not equivalent places of being bruised. A bruise on the heel is temporary. It's not life-threatening. It's a temporary wound. That's what Satan accomplished at the cross in Jesus. But when Jesus rose from the dead, came out of the tomb, that was a bruise on the head of Satan. That was a crushing defeat. There was mutual bruising, but it wasn't equal bruising. Christ has dealt the conquering blow to Satan who could only wound Jesus on the heel. So the resurrection of Jesus was first announced or promised in very shadowy language, admittedly very mysterious and shadowy language in the garden. But over time, God's plan becomes more clear. This is simply the initial promise. We've got long ways to go. So, first of all, think about it from God's perspective. The resurrection is a promised thing, okay? Secondly, let's, let's move on. The resurrection is also something that God foreshadows through, throughout history. From God's point of view, the resurrection is promised. It's, it's um, also foreshadowed. We have in the Old Testament all these life narratives, some of our heroes. And they are foreshadowing pictures of the resurrection of Jesus. Several individual lives that picture the resurrection. You might have a few in mind already. Let's name a few specifically. People whose lives and experiences in the Old Testament foreshadow the resurrection. Let's start with Isaac. Isaac, the beloved son of his father. Remember the son who Abraham loved, beloved, beloved Isaac, the beloved son of the father, laid on the altar, already dead in Abraham's heart and mind. Abraham had already determined to put him to death, but there's Isaac on the altar, as though dead, but given back to his father. And not killed. He was given back. We have Isaac. We have Job. 
Think about Job, the innocent sufferer. Job who had done nothing wrong. Job who was blameless. Job who was righteous. Job who suffered specifically not because he was a bad person. He was specifically singled out for suffering because he was so righteous. This Job laid in the the pit of physical and spiritual suffering, sitting in the dust, wishing for death. But not killed. Later brought out of the pit of despair. What happened when he was brought back up? He was given more than he had to begin with. We have Joseph. Joseph the resurrected savior. Joseph who was wrongfully thrown into the pit. Joseph who was wrongfully thrown into the dungeon and left. Joseph, who became a resurrected savior, wrongfully accused by his jealous brothers, sold for silver, left for dead, but exalted in power and became the savior of the world who everyone had to go to to find the bread of life to live. Brought up, given new clothes, cleaned up, appearing before the one in power, highly exalted to a place of power and given the keys to life. Who are all these pointing to? We have a beloved son laid on an altar. We have an innocent sufferer in the pit of death. We have a resurrected savior in Joseph. Not only them, but we have Daniel. Daniel, a faithful servant who the political power brokers hated. Couldn't find anything to accuse him of except in association with his God. Got him thrown into the pit of death, except he didn't die. People came to that place of death at early dawn. And if you read the account, they rolled the stone away from the mouth of the pit. And up came Daniel. Up he came from a place that people don't come out of alive because he was found to be blameless by God. Not only these, but I had to find a place for Jonah in this this whole thing because I love Jonah so much. And Jonah was in that fish for three days. He was buried. Who's Jonah? Jonah? Jonah the anointed preacher. Jonah, Jonah the one who came forth from a place of death and preached repentance and belief to the nations who Jesus himself says is a a type of his own ministry, the sign of Jonah. All these people enter into a place of death, the altar, the dust, the pit, the lion's den, the great fish. They are the beloved son. They are the innocent sufferer. They are the resurrected savior. They are the faithful servant. They are the anointed preacher. And they are restored. And they were resurrected, as it were, although none of them are resurrected from an actual death. Collectively, they point to a greater fulfillment, a greater person to come, who somehow fulfills all of those ministries in his one glorious person. Jesus, the beloved Son of the Father, 
the innocent sufferer who makes intercession for others, just as Job intercedes for his children. Jesus, the one who intercedes. Jesus, the resurrected Savior, who has the bread of life, who all of the nations have to come to in order to live. Jesus, the faithful servant, opposed by the political power brokers and put into place of death wrongfully, but preserved and resurrected because God found him faithful and it was impossible for the grave to hold him. Jesus, the anointed preacher, who rose and preached repentance to the nations after being in the belly of the earth for three days and came out. God has been working on the resurrection for a long, long time. And the stories, the narratives from the Old Testament are not random. They are strands in a thread that when you follow it, through the narrative, all lead to Jesus rising from the tomb in that garden on the third day at dawn. God paints the picture of the coming resurrection with different brushes. You know, he's helping us understand that the resurrection is coming. He doesn't just use one brush, not just the promise in the garden. He uses his word of promise, that's one brush, but he also uses these life narratives. That's another brush. And he uses other ones too. He uses prophecy. That's the third thing. From God's point of view, the resurrection is promised. It's foreshadowed. We just talked about that. It's also prophesied. As in there, are, there are people who write in the Bible, biblical authors, who foretell its coming. The, the, we'll only look at two of them. There's more than two. Um, I chose what I feel like are the most prominent examples, Isaiah 53 and Psalm 16 thinking about places that prophesy the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Where would we go if someone asked us, show me that in the Old Testament? I would suggest these two passages. Um, Isaiah 53 is the famous um, suffering servant text. It's part of that extended text about the suffering servant. This is the passage that includes um, some phrases you might find familiar, like, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Later on down in Isaiah 53, we read that being wounded and crushed for us will lead to his death and burial. We read, um, quote, they made his grave with the wicked, right? So he will die. He will enter a grave. But if you keep reading, still in Isaiah 53, further on down, same passage, okay, we're reading about an innocent sufferer who dies for other people's sins and is buried, but then if we keep reading, we find when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see And be satisfied. So somehow, this innocent sufferer who dies and is buried, somehow death is not the end for him. Like he's going to see the fruit of his death. His death will have a benefit for others and he will witness it. Now, that's, that's not a clear as crystal prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus, but nothing in the Old Testament is a clear as crystal prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus. It's in reading the Old Testament retrospectively from the perspective of the cross that we see how it all fits together. 
And before the cross, much of it remains murky. But the cumulative effect of all these things, the promise, the foreshadowing, the prophecy, reveals that God planned the death and resurrection of his son on our behalf long ago and revealed his plan progressively over time. Um, The other major prophecy um, of the resurrection that I mentioned, um, this is Psalm 1610. This is actually um, the verse that Peter uses in his um, sermon on the day of Pentecost. Speaking of Pentecost, Peter quotes Psalm 1610, Psalm of David, where David writes, writes this, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And Peter uses that Psalm 16 text to make the point that David must have been writing about someone else when he writes, you won't let your Holy One see corruption. Yeah, David wrote it, but when Peter's using it in his sermon, he says, hey, David can't be writing about himself here because we know where his grave is. We know that his body's been decomposing a long time. So who is this holy one whom God will not allow their body to see corruption? This point is it, it must point to someone else. It must point to Jesus. Jesus who will not experience the corruption of the grave. Jesus Jesus who will rise before his body begins to decompose. So again, it's in looking backward from the cross and the empty tomb that the pieces begin to come together. Just as they did for the first apostles. Once the cross and the resurrection happened, they could look back like Peter did and see what had been prophesied long ago. All right, let's hit these last three pretty quickly. We're thinking about the resurrection from God's perspective. We're saying, hey, from from God's point of view, this was promised. This was foreshadowed. This was prophesied. Fourth thing is that it was declared. Declared specifically in the New Testament. So if you want a crystal clear declaration of the coming death and resurrection of Jesus, all you have to do is go to Luke chapter 9, verse 21. Luke chapter 18, verse 33. Jesus tells his disciples specifically multiple times that he will be killed and he will rise on the third day. So what was shown mysteriously in the Old Testament is declared specifically in the New before it happens. So the resurrection is a a declared thing from God's perspective. Fifth, the resurrection is accomplished That's in the passage that we just read about. In the Luke 24 passage before us today, the resurrection is accomplished, promised, foreshadowed, prophesied, declared, accomplished. All these threads come together. Promise, biography, poetry, prophecy, teaching, all come together on this morning, and there is fulfillment. Think about it from God's perspective. What, what we might regard as incredible, God simply regards as inevitable. It was always going to be this way. He had planned it long, long ago. What we regard as incredible, God regards as inevitable. The holy and innocent one cannot be held by death. And Christ Jesus was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Promised, foreshadowed, prophesied, declared, accomplished, and finally, 
the last one, from God's point of view, the resurrection is something that's preached. From God's point of view, the resurrection is something that's to be preached. And we, we see this when we move over to verse 46, toward the end of chapter 24. Jesus is talking to his disciples post-resurrection. He says to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed or preached in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. The resurrection is something to be preached. One, let me say one quick thing about the place of the resurrection in preaching. We see this both from the sermons uh, of, uh, of both Peter and Paul. They both talk about the resurrection in their preaching. And we have examples of their preaching in the New Testament. When they're preaching, they present the resurrection of Jesus as confirmation that what God has spoken is true. When Peter and Paul preach, they present the resurrection of Jesus as confirmation of what God has spoken about coming judgment and forgiveness of sins. Peter does that in Acts 2. Paul does this in Acts 13 and Acts 17. They're preaching to people, people that have need to repent of their sins because a day of judgment is coming. Well, who's going to believe that? Who's who's going to believe when someone shows up and says, hey, judgment is coming. There's something that you need to do. Who in the world is going to believe that? Well, and they present Jesus as the one whom people from every nation must receive in order to be saved. People from every nation, no matter who their national gods are, everyone has to go to this Jesus who is a Jew. Well, who is going to believe that? Well, they present the resurrection of Jesus from the dead as God's assurance, his confirmation, both that judgment is coming and that Jesus is the one, the only one, who is a savior from that judgment. So when they preach judgment is coming and you need, you need to repent and believe in Jesus and people say, well, what's the, why should I believe that? Who, he raised him from the dead. That's the confirmation that they use. That's the proof that they give that these words are true. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. So look, here's what that means. They don't so much offer proof of the resurrection in their sermons as they present the resurrection itself as the proof that judgment is coming and the availability of forgiveness in Jesus. Isn't that interesting? The the modern listener wants proof of the resurrection. While in actuality, the resurrection itself is the proof that what God has spoken is true. What does that tell a a present-day preacher like me? What can I learn from the sermons of Peter and Paul? One of the things that it tells me is that it isn't so much my job to prove the resurrection to you as it is to proclaim the resurrection to you, to present it to you. As the confirmation that everything God has spoken of in the Scriptures is true. I can't prove it to you. 
That's beyond my ability and the ability of, of every preacher to prove the resurrection to you. I present it to you. I proclaim to you the risen Christ. And that a day of judgment is coming. And for you to remember your mortality. And that you have a sin debt that you can't pay. And that the only way to relieve yourself of that sin debt is to roll it off onto Jesus Christ who died for that very purpose. To believe that he did die for your sins and was raised on the third day for your justification, for your right standing before God. And on the basis of the Holy Scriptures, I tell you that everyone who believes this will have their sins forgiven and be saved. That's not my promise. That's God's promise. And I'll just say one last thing because I I know that no choice of words by me and no eloquence or lack of eloquence on my part can prove any of these things to you. Only only God, only the Holy Spirit can testify to your heart that these things are so. And I know that for some listening, especially those of you who are naturally skeptical, I can imagine you just sitting there wondering and asking, you know, why why didn't God give us a slightly less incredible sign to confirm that what he was saying is true? Why does, the, the, why does the bar have to be so high to believe in Jesus? Why do I have to believe? Why has God made it so that I have to believe that someone rose from the dead? Why do I have to feel like I, I have to check my brain at the door in order to believe in Jesus Christ? And if you feel that way, let me just ask you this. This is the last thing. What if God had given us a sign that did not break the law of physics in order to establish that his word is true? What if he chose, rather than raising a dead man, what if he chose an event that could happen naturally? Something that you could look at and say, yeah, I could see that happening. It doesn't break any laws of physics. What would you do with that sign? Would you be likely to look at that kind of a sign and say, God must be in this. This must be the way. If God, if a being worthy of the title of God is behind a movement and wanted to confirm to people that this is the exclusive way to seek him, What kind of a sign would you want him to give to confirm the truth of this way? Something pedestrian? Or something that only God could do? Lord, in this holy moment, I pray that you would simply confirm the truth of these words to hearts that have been skeptical of it before. I pray you would, if necessary, override and just rebuke every word that I've spoken and work in spite of me to give light to hearts that have not believed in Jesus and trusted them for forgiveness of sins because 
our, the day of our death is coming. And Jesus is the one appointed person who holds the keys to life. And everyone has to go to him to receive the bread of life. Have mercy on those listening. Have mercy on, on me, a mere human trumpet of these things. Just sent up here to, today to proclaim the very simple message which was given right away. Jesus has risen. Make us all like Peter, running to investigate and marveling at what's happened. We love you and pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.